Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term, sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Today, I'm so pleased to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Tracy Zemanski, join us. Dr. Zemanski is a licensed clinical psychologist a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a clinical sex addiction therapist and supervisor with a private practice in Santa Monica. Since 1994, she does clinical forensic and occupational psychological assessments, as well as depth psychotherapy. Dr. Zemanski is one of the few LA-based psychologists doing collaborative therapeutic assessment, a process that uses psychological testing as a brief dynamic intervention, helping clients and and referring therapists address diagnostic challenge and entrenched patterns. She is also a founding member and current president of Pacific Assistance Group, the sole comprehensive support and monitoring program for impaired healthcare providers throughout California. Dr. Zemanski received her PhD in clinical psychology from Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara and has studied under Dr. Patrick Carnes for her certification as a clinical sex addiction therapist supervisor. Welcome, Tracy Zemanski. Thank you so much, Dr. Zemanski, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's such a treat having you here today. And One of the things I just wanted to add to the introduction is that truly Dr. Zemanski is part of a small group of psychologists that helps treat impaired healthcare professionals. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And one of the things that we're going to be focusing on is is something that Dr. Zemanski calls the slippery slope. And it has to do with sexual misconduct and sexual boundary violations, but more specifically, how to help these folks who, who just run into these, these roadblocks in their careers. So again, uh, I'm just so pleased to have you here to talk about this super important topic. And, and I'm wondering if you could start off to, to describe what you mean by the slippery slope that can lead to sexually bound, sexual boundary violation. The slippery slope is something that can easily happen to any of us. It's kind of the gradual progression um, of boundary violations from the most subtle and non-sexual, like offering to give a patient a ride when their car broke, to frank sexual involvement. It's usually a process that happens gradually and oftentimes without being premeditated at all. Hmm. Can you say more about that? When you say it's not premeditated, how how does that happen? How does the slippery slope seem to happen without intention? 
Well, so you take a patient that is coming and asking for help, and you have a very stressed uh, physician who maybe doesn't have the best self-care, and they have a nice conversation. They're joking, they're enjoying each other's company, even though it's perfectly appropriate within the professional setting, but there's just that little edge of perhaps friendship that, you know, for some professions, that's acceptable. For others, it actually isn't. Maybe a patient brings some homemade cookies. Maybe there's an offer of, hey, could you just look at my daughter real quick after hours? And then I would be so grateful. Maybe there's an excuse to waive a copay. Again, in the beginning, it could be something that's very simple and well-intentioned, but with increased stress and increased frustration and who knows what's going on in the home lives of these two people, maybe the doctor-patient relationship gets shifted and their doctor-patient friend relationship. It could be that the physician is not intending anything other than compassionate care and gives the patient you know, a pat on the shoulder or a hug. And then there's a perception that that is more romantic than maybe is initially intended. So when caretaking or support goes past what would be considered appropriate professional boundaries, Mm -hmm. then things can slide with increased really stress and lack of self-care to something that the boundaries start to get blurred. And it may not be exploitive, like loaning a patient money, but it generally starts to shift that balance. And now there could be something that is more overt, like having an appointment in the later part of the day so that the office staff is now gone. Mm. There may be rescue fantasies on both patient and physician's part, and it's purely the physician's responsibility to hold the boundaries, but you know, physicians are people too and have the same kinds of issues that all the rest of us do. Mm. So it can move from something that seems innocuous and not planned to mm-hmm. really a double bind where there's now a secret and there's now a power shift. And the patient may not feel that they're in power, but of course, if there's a problem and the physician is the one who's responsible for that, then Mm -hmm. the patient now is in a very different role. Wow. So in other words, it can start out quite subtle. Yes. And and neither party may be aware of the the movement towards some kind of boundary violation, but but it can sometimes expand or grow from there. And the word that came for me is, is that there's a certain intimacy built into the relationship sometimes. You know, there's a vulnerability, there's an intimacy, and 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 then sometimes it goes too far. And I think that's what we're talking about today. Is that right? Yes. Because there are different types of boundary crossings that, like I was saying, 
giving a patient a ride if their car broke down and it's raining. Um, mm. It could be completely intended in a kind manner and with nothing else on anyone's mind. So it's already a boundary crossing. It doesn't mean it's a problem, but with increased, you know, stress or lack of self-care or overwork or substance use, all of those things are vulnerabilities and the stress and exhaustion and the demands from work and family and finance and the changing, you know, field of medicine um, and perhaps the lack of an other support system, it becomes problematic. Sure. And, and I really appreciate <clears throat> some of your language. And I was wondering if you could share more about possibly an example of a boundary blurring versus a boundary crossing. So a boundary blurring would typically be where the physician's role overlaps with other roles. Typically, this isn't exploitive and typically it doesn't harm the patient, although it might if it gives the patient ideas about something that isn't intended. So let's say the physician has a child who's the same age as the patient's child and they both are on the soccer team. They might, the physician and patient might see each other in a setting that's completely outside the professional setting and mm -hmm. it might be completely appropriate. Well, what if the patient is now the coach of the soccer team and the physician's daughter is on that same team. Again, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily problematic, but it does have the edge of there's two roles there. With boundary crossing, sometimes they're benign, like giving somebody uh, some money for cab fare if their car broke down. Um, it might be perfectly appropriate for a physician to share a personal story about something that relates to what the patient is going through. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily problematic, and it might indeed be a really good doctor-patient relationship and help that patient in ways that with a more neutral stance might not be so helpful. What I was... Wondering is when the boundary crossing happens, you mentioned the idea of it becoming problematic. So can you be more specific and share a little bit about what kinds of problems doctors will face after a boundary crossing? Well, the first level would be something that would be considered an impropriety, where it's somehow disrespectful of the patient's privacy, maybe leaving the door open when the physician needs to go get the nurse, for example. Um, or it may be looking at the patient in a way that feels uncomfortable to the patient. So there's something that's over the edge, but could easily be denied and could be said that this is not anything intended. It's not a problem. There's no contact. Um, there's nothing that's overt. Mm -hmm. It could be, but from there, it could be more of a transgression where there's inappropriate flirting or seductive behavior or touching the patient in a way that is definitely beyond 
normal physician patient touch. And the Mm -hmm. fact that physicians are touching patients' bodies easily Mm -hmm. leads to overstepping. Mm -hmm. A violation, regardless of who initiated it, is the physician's fault. So when there is frank sexual contact or sexual behavior, obviously that's the boundary has been completely broken. So really, there's a line that gets crossed that is not only problematic, but it, it's harmful. And and it it sounds like what what you do is you you actually get um, referred folks like this at the time that they have been caught. Basically, is that right? Actually, the best referrals that I get are people who are on the verge of being in trouble, but are not Mm, yet in trouble mm. so that we can do early intervention and prevent any patient harm and help the physician to address whatever the problems are, whether that's, you know, substance use or an extremely stressful, you know, family situation where the physician's taking care of children and elderly parents in addition to working, you know, a 60-hour work week. Right. Um, and help them see more clearly what's going on and address whatever those needs are that aren't getting met in healthy and appropriate ways so that patient harm doesn't happen. When patient harm has already happened, it's mm-hmm. very similar to you know, anybody who, let's say, gets a DUI. Mm-hmm. So uh, the problem has happened. The legal situation is now involved, which is not always the case, but the problem has occurred. Mm-hmm. And there are potential, you know, very serious consequences for anybody with uh, a medical license or any professional license when a boundary violation has happened, both legally mm-hmm. as well as professionally. Physicians, Code of ethics starts with the Hippocratic Oath, and Mm -hmm. that includes the statement, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially Mm -hmm. from abusing the bodies of men or women, and Mm -hmm. that the relationship between, you know, patient and physician is based on trust, and so there's an obligation on the physician's part to honor that trust and not harm it. I'm so glad you clarified the early intervention piece um, because number one, I wasn't aware that that was such a significant part of of the work you're doing. But also I was curious if you could share a little bit more for our listeners about what kinds of things you actually um, help the physicians with in terms of early intervention and, and prevention. The work is typically very similar to the work of early sobriety for any other behavior or substance. When there's been a boundary violation of any kind, we have to back that up and look at what was going on that promoted that type of behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, Where are the stressors? Where are the lack of awareness. Where's the lack of awareness? Where is empathy being used in the wrong way? Where Mm -hmm. is the 
physicians need to be needed problematic. Mm. There's so many ways that physicians are, you know, trained to be helpful and they're trained to be understanding and they're trained to be in charge and to be, you know, definitive about knowing what is best. Mm-hmm. And patients are coming with a reliance on a physician and that can be very powerful and very heady. And Mm -hmm, that need mm -hmm. to be needed is something that most human beings share. And Mm -hmm. we all like to be acknowledged. And sometimes that sense of being helpful or being acknowledged goes awry. And Mm -hmm. not unlike somebody who, you know, likes to go to Vegas a couple times a year and gamble or somebody who likes, you know, a glass of wine with their dinner. Mm And then you put the right combination of stressors and lack of other available tools that the person's willing to use or knows about using or has any experience with. And there's a setup and the problem can manifest in so many different ways. And I think the burden on the professional is that they have a standard of behavior that is above and beyond what many people would need to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. But they do need to pay attention because there's so much, you know, responsibility and trust. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking locally at, at UCLA, there's a doctoring program in their medical school to help the students um I, I call it have better bedside manner, but I'm sure there's more to it than than just that. And and I was wondering if you have any theories or any thoughts about what's getting missed, I mean, why are physicians um, not getting, why are they getting into trouble, basically? What, what What's happening that's preventing them from getting the kind of training and support for themselves that uh, results in boundary crossings? You know, physicians are trained to be responsible and to take on things that most of us wouldn't have to ever consider. They're supposed to be empathic. They're supposed Mm -hmm. to be altruistic. They're typically curious and intelligent people. Um, They're typically very high achievers. Mm -hmm. There's an undercurrent or maybe an overcurrent of, you know, compulsivity and fear of mistakes. And in medical school, because of the Mm. demands of the training and Mm. the literal lack of time for healthy self-care, those qualities can shift so that perception of being intellectually superior or expecting superhuman efforts out of themselves, which are beyond, you know, realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, The denial of trauma. Mm. Physicians are trained to, I mean, first year medical school, you know, gross anatomy. Physicians are dissecting human bodies. That is a very powerful and very um, intense experience that most of us never have. And most of us would be glad to never have it. And in order to do that, 
they have to learn, or in order to do surgery, or in order to do painful procedures of any kind, the physician has to be able to detach themselves emotionally, or they wouldn't be able to do the job. So, you know, we don't want our physician to be like sobbing in the middle of the floor because they have mm-hmm. to do a surgery and cut somebody open. We want them just to be like very defi- very clear. And they're like, okay, this is what I need to do. And this is what I'm doing. Um, so some of those experiences that require the physician to put their emotions, not just to the side, but really behind a locked door, mm-hmm. it can be hard to turn that off. So now you have somebody who's dealing with, you know, the regular stressors of life, just like the rest of us, but that part of them that might be vulnerable or open to asking for help or mm-hmm. able to, you know, cry over something that's mm-hmm. sad or painful mm-hmm. is now shut away. So mm-hmm. what do we do as human beings when we have no access to those parts of ourselves, we start to compensate. And again, physicians are no different than anybody else. And what they might compensate by is maybe they're working harder. Maybe they're working longer hours. Maybe they're having three glasses of wine when they go home just to get to sleep. And Mm. just like with any other compulsive addictive behavior, it can take on a life of its own and because their physicians are so used to not asking for help and being in charge, it becomes a double bind and they're mm-hmm. kind of stuck either way. You know, two things jumped out at me as you were talking. You were talking about the trauma that they witness in their patients. But what we didn't actually talk about is that they may have their own trauma background. As many of us do in different ways, whether it be relational or developmental or or specific trauma. And part of what is kind of sad for me as you're talking is that as psychotherapists, we have clinical supervision and consultation. And I know for me, it's part of what I do all the time because I want to stay sharp. I want to stay clean with my own issues. And I want to make sure that I'm processing whatever's coming up for me in, in my practice. Exactly. And I, and I think what you're sharing, which is really kind of startling to me, is that physicians don't necessarily have that built into their profession or their professional community. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. And it's one of the reasons that I find my work with healthcare professionals so profoundly satisfying is because there is a deep need to come out of that loneliness and isolation and to be able to talk to colleagues about really what's going on and about those past hurts, about the struggles that they can't discuss, um, you know, because of HIPAA and confidentiality. Where could a person go to talk about, you know, an adverse outcome for a case that maybe there was no fault of the physician, but people sometimes don't heal. And different specialties are dealing with that kind of onslaught of emotional pain that they're having to help on a daily basis. And Mm -hmm. where do they go? 
with their own, there is nowhere. Wow. So the groups that I run are a place where physicians who are even they're stressed by normal life. Maybe they're getting a divorce or maybe, you know, they've had to see, you know, triple the number of patients because mm -hmm. of COVID or there's something going on in their own family. Maybe their mother is dying and yet they still have to go show up for work. And maybe they're working with, you know, patients who remind them of their mother. Mm-hmm. Right. So having a place to be able to openly talk about those things and have whatever feelings human beings have mm -hmm. without shame and without any kind of judgment is profoundly healing. Profoundly. And, and I also want to mention that your work is primarily in groups. Um, and, and you and I both know that that groups are such a healing modality. It's such a, such a place of feeling less alone, feeling like you get a lot of feedback from others, that it's not just a therapist telling you, uh, you know, not just one person, but it's a whole room full of people going through a similar situation. And in a way, what, what hit me about that was it's, it's just like 12 step. When exactly. somebody, yeah, when somebody hits bottom, it's time that they get help. And oftentimes it's it's actually a door to finding balance and well-being and and really shifting one's life entirely. And, you know, I, I like what you said before about early intervention because that's what we might call a higher bottom where they that before a lot of consequences happen, they, they get the help that they need. And then others are not so fortunate. Maybe their bottom is, is uh, more uh, difficult for them. But, but either way, it, it's, it's kind of a silver lining, right? Because these people that make it to your groups are really starting a brand new chapter in their life and, and, and having this opportunity, um, sometimes mandated and sometimes not, but, but this opportunity to uh, find healing for themselves. Yes. And as with most people who go into a 12-step program, the healing is on so many levels that nobody expects when they walk in the door. They really usually have a very circumscribed idea of what, quote-unquote, the problem is. And oftentimes it's, it wouldn't include them. It would be the circumstances that caused the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And being able to be with peers who can, you know, gently and lovingly, and sometimes not quite so gently, but lovingly, um, share not only a clearer version of what, you know, reality might be, but mm -hmm. also that there's hope to have a life that's better than they had even imagined for themselves um, with the support and companionship of people who, again, are understanding, caring, loving, and supportive, um, non-judgmental. Like, we could all use a group of people like that in our lives. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more that it's something that 
in theory could be universal and universally healing for, for so many people. And I'm wondering, as we wind down our time today, if you have any anything else that you would like to leave with our listening audience? I think the idea that there are self-care options that anybody, including very busy professionals, can take. And there are places that anybody, including healthcare professionals, can go for support is really important because the problem often is the person feels very alone and very scared in a way, um, but perhaps ashamed of having some kind of secret or not being able to manage, you know, even the normal stresses of life and not realizing that there are, you know, options available so that they don't have to walk through whatever the problem is by themselves. And just having that knowledge that there are places and options to help, I think can be really um, helpful. And that just because you're intelligent and highly trained doesn't mean that benefiting from peers who understand that isn't, can't be a profoundly life-changing experience. Absolutely. So I just want to say again, it was such a pleasure having you here today. And I want to also mention to our listeners that you can be reached at your website, which is drtracyzemanski.com, and that's spelled D-R-T-R-A-C-Y-Z-E-M-A-N-S-K-Y.com. And also, Dr. Zemanski can be reached at her phone number office, uh, or office phone number, I should say, at 310-664-0454. And um, it's been so great to have you here with us. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you for listening today. It was really great sharing this time with my very talented colleague, Dr. Tracy Zemanski, and discussing this really significant topic that affects those affected by problematic sexual behavior and crossing of sexual boundaries. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if there are any topics you would like us to discuss in the future, please let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts, and thanks again for being with us today.